One of the courses I teach at Providence Christian College is Journalism 101. And this is a, a basic class uh, to teach students and introduce them to overarching principles of journalism, at least historic journalism. And one of those principles that is a lesson one kind of thing is, is don't bury the lead. Now, if you've never heard this phrase before, what, well, let me go ahead and quote um, from Laura Brown. She's a communications coach that we would um, use in our class to instruct kids and share some thoughts. And, and she has some insight about the concept of burying the lead uh, that actually has application for where you live on a day-to-day -day basis, too. She writes, the term bury the lead comes from journalism. In a news story, the lead is the first sentence, which concisely conveys the main point of the story. Ideally, the reader should be able to scan just the first sentence or two of a story and come away with a clear idea about what the story is about. A good lead will also hook the reader and motivate him to read further. A story with a buried lead begins with the secondary details, forcing the reader to continue reading to discover the main point. Burying the lead is considered a mistake in journalism because it can cause the reader to lose interest in a story and stop reading. For the same reason, burying the lead is a bad idea in your emails. Your readers are busy people, and if you want maximum attention and maximum action, you're better off beginning your emails with your main point and providing the secondary details below. At the very least, you should be sure to get your main point in the first paragraph of your email message. Now let's do the benediction and go home. You've gotten all you need out of today's message. Uh, as I've studied this week in John, in particular John chapter 5, and then reflected again on John's overarching purpose for the gospel itself, all 21 chapters, it, it struck me that perhaps John often buries the lead. And I want to point that out just seemingly obviously from today's text. There are 18 verses all comprised together that communicate a single story for a variety of reasons which we'll get to. But in verse 18 of our section of Scripture, it says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the entire story actually gets summed up at the end. And this is super consistent with John because he waits till the end of the 20th of 21 chapters to give us verses 30 and 31, which say, this is the reason I've written down all these things. He says in that ver those verses, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has twice decided to bury the lead. Why? I don't know. I just know that for our purposes, we will read again and again through the grid of this purpose for the Gospel of John. Every section of Scripture communicates more and more of the same thing. This can, at times, concern somebody who has to get up in front of the church and preach every week because you feel like you might actually be saying the same thing over and over again. Then I realized it hasn't hurt Joel Osteen all that much, so I'm in really 
good company. So, but I do really honestly think that there's a degree to which um, the gospel, Jesus, is at the center of everything we do and teach. And, and the applications may be many, but we're always going to focus in on what Jesus has done and then from there, see how that gets applied to the varying points in our lives. We know John has made this concept, this theme of Jesus' divinity, the center of just about everything he writes. And in this particular context, John is moving us from the first four chapters into the next section with an introduction to the Jewish leadership, a Jewish leadership that is now increasingly hostile to Jesus and his disciples. And this is why. He wants to introduce this tension as it builds towards the climax of the Son of God being crucified for the sins of the world. In verses 1 through 3, I want to read this to give you a sort of a setting for our story today. It says, after this, in some translations it actually says, sometime later, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is a there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. When the passage says, after this, it's speaking about a fairly lengthy stretch of time. History tells us that in between Jesus' healings in Galilee and John chapter 4 and some time later here in chapter 5, a significant upheaval had taken place in Jerusalem, uh, escalating tensions between the Roman Empire and Jewish leadership over roles and rules. And these policy changes either played a role in the increase of zealotry, zealot activity, or it happened simultaneous to them. Either way, it heightened the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. It heightened their sensitivity to these rebel groups and actually made them really hypersensitive to Jesus. Now, you see the sovereign plan of God in this, and, and this is part of why John is bringing us and bringing them into the story, is that it's this increased tension brings about eventually the necessary crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus, if you don't know, wasn't surprised by his crucifixion. He knew it was coming. He knew that he had come for such a purpose, that he had a reason for being, which was to be substituted for all those who would ever profess faith in him, that he would die for the sins of the world. Jesus provided this atoning sacrifice. He was the Messiah. Jesus' perfection as deity revisited again here by the Gospel of John, is done because it plays a huge role in the validity of an atoning sacrifice. The, the, the one who would be substituted for the mass of humanity and their sins would not only have to be pure, holy, without blemish, but they would also have to have a life value that was equivalent to just too many lives to be counted. And the only person 
whose life is worth the sum total of every human being who would ever put their faith in Christ is God himself, his son, and the only one who would ever be pure enough to be literally exchanged for the impurity of his people would be God, holy and divine. John is making the case again that Jesus is not only divine, but that his divinity produced three things that we're going to look at today. The first is the power to heal. The second is the primacy of authority. And the third is the prerogative to command. So let's dive into John 5 and see what God has for us today. The first is this. Jesus' divinity holds the power to heal. Verses 5 through 9 read like this. One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now, no human being can heal you. In the scriptures, when the apostles or those with the gifts of healing, or even in our day when our elders come together and, according to the scriptures, anoint someone with oil and pray for their healing and God actually brings physical health to them, we need to remember it's God doing the healing and not any individual. In the case of Jesus, it's important to recognize, too, he wasn't asking someone else to do the healing. Jesus was doing the healing. He wasn't operating out of a spiritual gift. He was actually the creator of the universe. In John 1.10, through him all things were made. When he speaks, healing comes. Jesus himself was our healer and is our healer. And the pool to which he was uh, around and ministering to the the people that were around this pool of Bethesda, uh, they actually thought that there was something magical that was going to happen. The legend was that the, the angel would come down and stir the waters and the first person in the water would get healed. Uh, some New Testament scholars don't necessarily believe that this was legitimate. Uh, others think that there was a, the power of God at work. It doesn't necessarily matter in this case because we know that Jesus was there to show that he didn't need the angels or anyone else for that matter, let alone the magic water, that he himself could speak healing into this situation. Regarding the pool, it's interesting, side note, in the 19th and 20th century, critics of the reliability of the New Testament had for a long time seen a problem with the Gospel of John because archaeologists had never located the pool of Bethesda. And then lo and behold, in the last 50 years, uh, although excavated in the late 19th century, it took more than 100 years for archaeologists to accurately identify and interpret what is now known to be the site of the pool at Bethesda. Uh, It is verifiably where Jesus has been described as John as healing a man. And, And I would say more important regarding whether or not the pool had magic powers or whether or not it was a cultural myth. It was Jesus' entry into the situation and the metaphor of what was supposedly taking place in this pool that now we see happening in Christ. He is the embodiment 
of life healing. He is the healer. He can heal all our diseases. And if you're here today and you've got some pain in your life, or you've got a struggle or strain, we've asked you to participate with us in this day of prayer of, for transformation in our personal lives. And next month, next week, we're going to collect prayer requests about transformation in our church and in our community and things that we want to be praying for. And we've been instructed by Scripture to bring forth what we need and desire. This is an act of humility on our part. Uh, we're not told to get caught up in the minutiae of God's responsibility versus our responsibility and God's divine sovereign plan and our free will and whether or not we should ask. Jesus just says, come to me, pray our Father, tell me what you want, recognize and submit to my will be done. But he never tells us to not pray. Quite the contrary, in some amazing way, God melds together his providence with our prayers to produce what he wants. Our prayers are part of God's plan. They're not inconsequential. The prayer of a righteous man, the scripture says, is, is, is faithful and it accomplishes much. Uh, prayer isn't a game. This is something you and I are called to do. See, and in Jesus' case, we can come straight to him and he can heal our diseases. Most primary among them, most prominent among them, is the disease we have of sin. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah uh, spoke of a future day when the Messiah would come and heal us of our greatest problem. In verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In keeping with today's metaphorical theme, we're not going to bury the lead and wait till the end of the, wait till the, end of the message to encourage you to contemplate what should be of the greatest concern to you, and that is the state of your soul before God. And with clarity, great clarity, both the prophet Isaiah and the apostle John make it known that we are at peace with God only through the chastisement of the one whom the Father has laid all of our iniquity. Unto him, all of the punishment that was due our sin, he has now come to rescue us from. This is the ultimate healing that Jesus wants to bring about and what Isaiah clearly is talking about. We have all gone astray, each one of us turned to our own way. And yet the Lord has graciously said, I'm not going to hold you responsible for that disobedience. Somebody's got to pay for it but I'm going to send my son to do that. Your obedience to God, my obedience to God, our collective obedience to God is not the means by which we can be at peace with God. We are at peace with God because Jesus obediently followed the Father's plan to be crucified and die in our place for our sins. We are saved by His works, 
Our works come as a result of coming to terms with just how incredible it is that he would go all the way. He would come and give his life to rescue us. People then will ask, and if you come from a religious background, you perhaps have wrestled through this as I know I have, which is there are times where I think, well, then what exactly is the purpose of like the law? If we're saved by grace through faith, if we trust in Christ, believing in him, you know, what is the purpose of law? And this morning you actually recited it in our time of worship from the New City Catechism. Week 15 question, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? And here from the website, which you can access, you can download a New City Catechism app. You can really party on that New City Catechism. You're quite an animal, I'm sure. The answer is that we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus our need of a Savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. Jesus' divinity, in his divinity, there is the power to heal. We see that evidenced in the physical healings that can take place, but that physical healing is to point us to the greatest healing that we need. It is in his divinity that we're actually capable of having peace with God, knowing that 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 account has been settled. If Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah, the one who, through whom all things were created, if he was punished for your sins, there's no other punishment that needs to be exacted. You're free. You're liberated. It's in his divinity that you can know that you're healed. The second thing the divinity provides, Jesus' divinity provides primacy over all. Authority has been granted him. Here we read, really it's the end of verse 9 where we're directed that the day on which the healing took place was the Sabbath. And we pick up in verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? And now the man who'd been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Let's be really clear up front. The Pharisees are wrong. It, they said it is not lawful. That's just not true. If you're speaking of the Mosaic law, there's no mention of mats or the absence of carrying a mat or picking a grain or any number of things. And this is something that's, again, rooted in Jesus' divinity. He is the one who can speak. He has the authority to supersede any extra-biblical extrapolation of the actual text of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. His divinity evidenced by his healing and his power is what gives him authority and to be the final authority on matters of faith and practice. It's not, in the case of the Pharisees and Sadducees, their extra-biblical works in modern days, it's not our confessions or our denomination's authority structure to which we will be held accountable one day. We will all 
stand before God and give an account for what His Word says. Not what a human being says about the law, what His Word actually says to us. Regarding the Sabbath, while the Torah, the law of Moses, condemned uh, nowhere condemned healing, the halakha, the Jewish collection of interpretations, did. The extra-biblical, in that case, became the primary. And many of us could testify to places and churches and denominations we've been a part of where that subtly begins to happen. We don't look to what Exodus 20 says. We begin to start to analyze what our little extra-biblical document says, and then that becomes the law. And then we have the nerve to do as the Pharisees did, which is to say, it is not lawful to do this. And you go, hold on a second. You don't get to declare from your extra-biblical directive that it's not lawful. Because Jesus is divine by nature, his interpretation of law has primacy over all others. And if we look right to the text in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, this is what it says. This is the command, the Sabbath command from the law. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. See, the Sabbath is a pre-fall institution. Resting every seventh day is something God wanted for Adam and Eve before they ever fell into sin. This is something that is part of how we are hardwired as human beings, made in the image of our Creator who worked for six days and then rested. The command to remember the Sabbath is still intact because it's part of who we are. It's part of how God made us. In spite of the fact that there have been, over the years, some theologians have con- who concluded that Jesus has effectively eliminated the Sabbath command altogether. What we do know is that nothing can be attached to the Sabbath. Nothing can be added as a prohibition on the Sabbath where Scripture doesn't prohibit us. We are told here in Exodus 20, rest from our labors. And this clearly, if you read the entirety of the Old Testament, is about resting from working and earning a living. This is not about resting. Don't play with your kids because that's exhausting. What a great thing that would be for you young parents. Hey, it's the Sabbath. Go to your rooms. You know, uh, it's, it's not that. It, it, you can exercise on the Sabbath. The, what's, what's in play here is trusting God and, and not working. And that's enough of a challenge for folks to say, I have a, one day a week that I set aside for my physical and spiritual rest to honor the Lord, to keep that day holy. To keep it holy means to use it for what God intended it for, which is connection with He and His people through worship, through public gathering, and also to enjoy each other. Now, from a physical labor standpoint, the reason that was such a difficult thing for people in an agrarian culture to do is because they were actually, every day, they could produce something. 
And so sacrificing a day of labor was to sacrifice really financially. I think about Chick-fil-A. I'm there six days a week, baby. I love that place. Oh, man, is it good. You know, and that place is bumping like sun up to sun down. That drive-thru is never not like off the street. It's, except it's faster than In-N-Out. So, you know, I can handle it. You know, In-N-Out, I just give up. You know what I mean? There are times you drive up and you're like, I do not have an hour to wait for this hamburger regardless of how good it is. And in the case of Chick-fil-A, I mean, that place is bumping 24 hours a day almost, except for on Sunday. Right now, it's a ghost town. It's just shut down. Somewhere in its history, Stuart Cathy said, you know what, I'm going to honor the Lord, and I'm not working on Sunday, and nobody in the company is going to be working on Sunday, so do whatever you got to do, but we're shutting this baby down. Think of the money they're missing out on, because if they open that seventh day, that's one-seventh more money for these people. Because you know on a Sunday, we'd pack that joint. Well, the point in all of this is that we're called to rest physically because it's better for us, trusting God because He has told us to. And it's Jesus' divinity that mandates that we obey Him in this matter. In particular, we think about Jesus' divinity giving primacy over the rules of mankind. Earthly authorities will, from time to time, issue a decree that would contradict something we were supposed to do in Scripture. In the Old Testament, it was Daniel in Babylon being told that he couldn't for an entire month pray to any god except for King Darius. And he's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And so he keeps praying. He ends up getting thrown in the lion's den. He is rescued from the lion's den. This is going to happen in our culture if it isn't happening places all over the world where we're going to be faced with a choice between obeying God or obeying the law. And in modern cases of social injustice, we must fight for what's biblically right. It was St. Augustine who famously said, it seems to me that an unjust law is no law at all. Because we all give an account to God about our response to His Word, PRISM and churches in our association take the study of Scripture really seriously. Um, that's why we have a class meeting during our 11 o'clock hour to study it more carefully to teach people and give people the skills to, to actually learn how to read Scripture and interpret it the way God would intend for it to be interpreted. We're sensitive to those who would misinterpret and misapply Scripture and in so doing lead people astray. We don't want to be guilty of such a thing. Furthermore, there are those who would have you not believe that Scripture is God's Word. And they have used this as a way of kind of driving a wedge into the church between people who are silly enough to believe what the Scriptures say is actually authoritative and from God and those of us who are super progressive and really see the Bible for what it is, which is just a book of suggestions and instead of a book of directives and really a, a revealing plan of the glory of God we very much are going to be careful to point out where those who would try, when those would try to erode your confidence in the Old and New Testaments. Being a follower of Christ means following Him over and above 
all religious influences that would steer you away from his word, especially as it's taught and understood by Jesus himself. Paul's challenge to the church in Colossae is, is as relevant today as it was almost 2,000 years ago. Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. It was Jesus who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Matthew 28, think of the arrogance associated with such a statement if it weren't true. But Jesus is divine. And because Jesus is divine, he not only holds the power to heal, he contains within his divinity the absolute primacy over all other authorities. He, his whole being, is the fullness of God in bodily form. And he has the, been declared the head over all. Beware, friend, that the ethos of our culture is often at odds with the commands of Scripture. In each situation where this happens, we must base our life on the reality of Christ's deity. And then finally, Jesus, His divinity, reveals the right to command. It is His prerogative as Creator to command us to do things. He's gracious. He's kind. But they aren't the Ten Suggestions. They're the Ten Commandments. He loves you. He cares for you. But He loves you and cares for you enough that He is going to help you obey Him if you're not going to, by His grace and power, willingly do so yourself. Verses 14 through 17 of John 5 say, Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who'd healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus tells them, tells the young man, or the old man who just healed, Sin no more. So, however patient he may be with you and I, however gracious Jesus is to all, and bruised reeds he does not break, smoldering wicks he does not snuff out, all of that be true, he is still regularly telling people, don't sin. They're not incompatible concepts for him to tell us, obey me, trust me. Jesus' divinity is why we should obey him. Now, obedience is required when somebody is God or somebody certifiably represents God. So I would say to teenagers, your parents, as long as they're not telling you to do something God doesn't want you to do in his words, 
sorry to be the bearer of bad news. They are certifiable representations of God. I know every parent's looking at their kid right now. Give them a break, all right? Uh, But seriously, the commands say, honor your father and mother that it might go well with you, that you might live long and prosper. These These are the promises of God. Now, the problem becomes if a person begins to doubt that Jesus is God or that the things that are written about him that he said and did and that his apostles were presumably given the grace and the power of the Spirit to declare and codify in the Word, if you begin to doubt that, then you now have to choose on your own which commands you wish to obey and which ones you choose to ignore. We're left in this really difficult circumstance where we have to make choices based on what we think is right. The Proverbs are really clear. Proverbs 14, 12 through 16, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way to death. By nature, we're broken. We make choices based on our selfish instincts, our sinful instincts. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. In the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways and the good man with the fruit of his ways. The simple believes everything. The prudent gives thought to his steps. One who's wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Jesus' divinity really gives him the prerogative to command those he created because He's the potter, we're the clay. He has every right. And he may speak it in the most gentle voice, in the most kind way possible, but he's still commanding you and me to obey him. Practically, that means that we have to heed the words of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote that we're not to conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Put another way, God's Word is now the filter through which a Christian runs every part of their lives. Have a big decision to make? Facing a tough challenge in life? What does God's Word say about it? Who does God's Word say to get wisdom and advice from before you make the decision? Does God's Word say anything about how fast you should make that decision? Does God's Word have anything to say about the vast sums of wealth that you may accumulate? For the unmarried Christian, particularly in our culture, does the Scripture speak to the issue of sex outside the covenant of marriage? Does Scripture say anything about avoiding the appearance of evil that might take place if you were living together unmarried with your significant other? Does God's Word have something to say about who you join yourself romantically with and whether or not that person should have genuine faith in Jesus? Does God's Word have anything to say about the gender of the person you're supposed to marry? Yes, it does to all of it. And it's the death of Jesus revealed in Scripture that, and the deity of Jesus revealed in Scripture that gives him the right to direct those who are his children, to command those who he has created to obey him for his glory and for our good. Now the problem is if you get raised in church, then anytime you hear about the necessity to obey the commands of God, it just feels burdensome. 
But that's because somewhere in the middle of that, we've lost relationship and connection with the Father. And so his commands sound like somebody who's just trying to mess up our fun instead of somebody who's actually trying to help us out. My first job in journalism was with a lifestyle magazine. I was working as a jockey, and uh, I happened to live next door to the editor of our city's lifestyle magazine, and he said, well, why don't you write a column for me? I said, great. So I wrote my first masterpiece, and uh, back in those days, you had to turn it in as a manuscript. You type it out, you turn it in, and uh, editors used red pens back then, and so you'd get something back, and you'd know where the corrections were. And I expected, you know, him to find a spelling error or two. Um, But when I got this thing back, I promise you, this thing looked like it had been at a crime scene. (laughs) I mean, I needed a blood spatter analyst to be able to see through the red to get to what I'd actually written. And I had no choice. I wasn't given the option, hey, you're going to write for our magazine? Here are some suggestions for you. There were no suggestions. It was commands. You will change this to read like this. And he was my next door neighbor, one of my best friends at the time. He was saying, hey, I love you, but you're going to do what I tell you to do. And he smiled and gave me back this blood-soaked, you know, (laughs) manuscript. I made the changes. We went forward. A week later, two weeks later, the magazine comes out, and people are coming up to me and going, That was a great article. Man, you're a heck of a writer. And I thought to myself, if you only knew. (laughs) Not that good. But man, I look good. And, And that's the nature of submitting to the authority of somebody who actually loves and cares for you and cares about what your life is going to look like. It it isn't burdensome. You're saying You mean, I can actually listen to you, maybe even do something that is counterintuitive to me that may require some humility on my part, and in the end, because you love me, I can follow you and it will work out for my good. This is the divine nature of God who loves you enough to command you to do what's best for you. See, it's his divinity that gives him the right to do that, and Again, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let us pray.